Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. So the story of Relisha Rudd is one that is not told often, as in her story is not unknown. It is a story that happens again and again across the U.S., and so today I'm going to tell you Relisha's story because it is bound to be repeated over and over again. And maybe by discussing and bringing attention to her story, maybe we can help prevent it from continuing on and on and on. So my name is Sophia Talley and this is True Crime In It. show we have adela colvin of lola bean yarn welcome to the show thank you so much for taking the time out of your super busy schedule to chit chat with me and being on a show that hasn't aired yet i really appreciate that <laughs> no problem well thank you for having me i really wanted you because i really like how outspoken you are on social media and like your personality is just so fun and I think everyone will just enjoy to have your insight today. So that's why I was like, I have to have you, you know, on the show. In the winter of 2014, Relisha Rudd was an eight-year-old child living in Washington, D.C. Relisha herself was a normal second grader. She loved to laugh. She was quiet and well-behaved in school. But when it came to hanging out with her family and friends, she was just funny and loving and friendly. She was just, from all accounts, a very lovely and happy young girl who just had a bright future ahead of her. Relisha lived with her mother, Shamika Young, and her stepfather, Antonio Wheeler, along with her three brothers. And the family lived in a now notoriously and thankfully defunct D.C. General Family Shelter, which is a homeless shelter. This shelter was known for having some of the roughest living conditions, and it was only marginally better from living on the streets. It actually used to be a hospital in the early 20th century. It was never renovated, so it still looked like a hospital and not like a home. It had that abandoned haunting feeling. I was looking at pictures and I was horrified because there was medical records still scattered around. Yeah, that sounds awful. Yeah. And they called it a homeless uh, shelter. There's one woman, she would organize the children's playtime and she was like, it was not a safe place for kids to play. They had a playground. But if they were to wander through a double door, it would look like an old abandoned hospital with all the like leftover equipment, like scary stuff. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was just a nightmare. And on top of that, residents were often hospitalized for spider and parasite bites. And this place was almost 100 years old, and it was just decaying. That's the only way I could describe it as decay. Horror movie style, almost. It wasn't really that great of a place to stay. And actually, Relisha's stepfather's recounts, they used to serve us moldy food. And he says, we had to cut hot dogs open to see if it was molded on the inside, which I'm shocked because, A, hot dogs are so, like, 
processed. I didn't know that they can mold, so that's scary. So it's just, and it's so like affordable item that is normally, you know, at homeless shelters. I just don't understand how it was mold. Like, I just don't understand how that got from A to B like really fast there. Another resident said, I'm thankful that I have a roof over my head and my kids get meals every day. But after that, life is a struggle. There are fights all the time. People are outside doing dope and my boys are scared. So all it was essentially was just a roof over their heads. So you can imagine that uh, Relisha just hated living in this shelter. In fact, she called it a trap house. Sounds about right. But I'm surprised she had that in her vocabulary because she's like in second grade. But I mean, she's calling it what it is. In fact, it was reported that she hated living there so much and that she never wanted to go home at the end of the school day. And when she went to school, her clothes were often dirty. And you can tell that she just wasn't getting the best quality of care at quote-unquote home because I hate even calling it a home. I just want to pause here because this happens so much in every single city. I used to go to school at Montclair State. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's in Jersey and it's about 15 minutes or so from New York. And I did a stint of tutoring and for third grade math for students in a local charter school who needed like a little bit of a push, a little bit of a head start. And I tutored uh, third grade math, which I had no business tutoring because math is hard for kids now. <laughs> It's a different math. I had no business tutoring that, but I did what I could. And this was in the upper part of Montclair, which is such an affluent area that I honestly felt like every time I took a breath, I had to pay $5. My aunt used to live in upper Montclair. I had one aunt in upper Montclair. She was a marketing executive. And I had another aunt that lived in, in Maplewood. So, <laughs> so, so you know, like there are mega mansions, but I will say about 15 minutes away from these mega mansions, there were impoverished neighborhoods where these children were coming from and they were in a very similar situation to Relisha. Back in the early 90s, when my mother left the Air Force and we moved back to New York, where she's originally from, we did a stint in a homeless shelter. So I have personal experience you know, in those conditions. We were in Brooklyn. So, you know, when you start describing those things to me, I start thinking back and I remember it was like an armory building and it wasn't like everybody had a room. It was like cots that were, you know, like laid out. And I, I often remember we were there for maybe maybe a week before they moved us to a different shelter. But I remember my mom never slept. She stood over. She would... St and watch me and my brother as we slept because it was just a big open room and you had like, you know, some of the hardest, you know, people and element, you know, walking around that it was nuts. So like, as you're describing this to me, I'm just like, oh, I, I remember, I, I, oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that because that really brought in a lot of insight to the story. At this shelter, Relisha made a friend and it was 50 year old Khalil Tatum. And he was the janitor at the D.C. General Family Shelter. And he was married to Andrea Kelly for 24 years. And they lived in hotel rooms in the area. They didn't live in this shelter. Prior to being a janitor at the shelter, Khalil was a convicted felon. And he was charged with burglary, larceny, and breaking and entering. He was actually in and out of prison from 1993 to 2011. 
Like he got out one time, I believe in 2000, and just got sent right back. So he was barely on the outside. And so he had this checkered past. And despite this, at the shelter, everyone knew him as like this friendly guy. He would talk to all the kids and teens, and many of them referred to him as their godfather. He was well-liked. He would often give them money and talk to them and give them advice and hang out with them, which was against his code of conduct for being an employee at the shelter. But as we mentioned, the shelter wasn't really doing its best. I've never seen a shelter like that in my life. But Khalil took a special interest in Relisha. He earned Shamika's trust, so Relisha's mother, by buying her her own tablet. Parents don't have enough to give her like something like an iPad. So that's amazing to her. And he was always there and would often take Relisha on outings. They even went to see Disney on Ice together. And Shamika was just so thankful to have a father figure in Relisha's life that was able to provide all these luxuries for her. And they began calling her, calling him Relisha's godfather. And they would spend a lot of time together, even like do overnight visits. He would take Relisha to his home, which was usually a hotel room, for a full weekend video- visits Friday through Sunday. So that way she could be back in school on Monday. He would even give her money. And oddly enough, he was actually listed as Relisha's doctor on her doctor notes for school, claiming that he was treating her for neurological conditions. And no one questioned that. So if she was missing from school, he will write a doctor's note for her, listing himself as the doctor. Oh, my spidey senses are like all over the place. Yeah. And what I couldn't find, because this is all very, there's a lot of conflicting information because a lot of the information is gathered from people's experiences, which is not that accurate. But from what I gathered from piecing everything together, it almost seemed as if a lot of these doctor visits were when Relisha was with him. He would ask to take Relisha out on a school day and they would say yes, because originally it was supposed to be over the weekend. But then it sounded as if they kind of moved into him just taking her whenever, regardless of school. So when researching this and his relationship, uh, Relisha, what kept popping up in my head was grooming. Like, that was my number one thing. Grooming, grooming, grooming with the expensive gifts and money. You know, he was exerting a type of power that a homeless child and her family did not have. I don't want to judge her mother because society built this, you know, like they But what would you do in a situation where your child is growing up in a derelict hospital with nowhere to play? And this guy just shows up with a steady job and, like, insists on giving her expensive presents and takes her out to see, like, Disney on ice, which is pretty expensive. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure it will will be very enticing to Relisha's mother just be like, yes, accept these things, especially when she can't provide these luxuries herself the whole thing is just predatory like if you look at it it's like okay he's spending all of this money on these extravagant things but he doesn't even have like a steady place to live right so that that's one thing i'm like you don't even have somewhere you know like a steady apartment or place where you live but you're buying all of these things it just that is the first like that doesn't make sense i oh and his job is a janitor at a shelter which 
I'm sure that it's not the same salary as being a janitor at a school because they don't have the funding for that. You know, like you're probably just getting minimum wage, no benefits, possibly. You know what I mean? Because they can't even afford to have a building. You have to remember that. Like he's just making the bare minimum to survive. And he's a felon. It just doesn't add up. But to them, it just, he seemed like a blessing to the family. And the whole family knew him and trusted him. So when Relisha left with Khalil and still had not returned for 18 days in April, the family just wasn't alarmed. And that may sound crazy, but where I come from, you know, like half my family is African-American, half my family is Afro-Latino, and it's not uncommon to allow your child to stay with a more affluent family member for a month or more just to give them what might be a better life experience. This is a very common practice in my community and my family. And so a private investigator who's on the case, Henderson Long, stated that in regards to Shamika sending her daughter to regularly stay with Khalil, she, Shamika, probably let her daughter go thinking it was a better opportunity. The shelter was a hellhole. She probably made a mistake, a grave one. So, and Relisha began to spend more and more time with Khalil to the point where the shelter noticed that at night checks, they would do like night bed checks, but not really good ones. So they will notice that one child was missing, but they wouldn't take note of which child was missing. But we think it's Shamika because of family's accounts. They're saying like, well, he's the only one that was allowed to go anywhere you know, for that long period of time, which is so odd. And she was the eldest, too. And because of her constant visits with Khalil, when Relisha was missing for 18 days, no one noticed. No one noticed. And by March 13th, the school realized, finally, and this is a little bit where information gets conflicting, they said that she was absent for 10 days, But I saw that she had a total of 30 unexplained absences in school. So I don't know if the school really knows which one of those absences was when she first went missing or if she just wasn't in school. And then somehow in the middle of these absences, she went with Khalil. It's still really sketchy, that timeline. It's just, she just poofed, like, almost like that book. And then there were none. That's what I felt like the whole time. Yeah, and then finally on March 13th, the school finally reached out to D.C.'s Child and Family Services agencies for assistance. They were supposed to reach out after her 10 unexplained absences. And it took three times that, basically. Wow. And finally on March 19th, her social worker that was assigned to her decided to visit the school to investigate. And as part of the investigation, he took a look at Relisha's old doctor notes and noticed that the doctor who authorized them was no doctor. Um, he was instead the janitor at the local shelter. So no one looked at these records cl- closely to realize there is no doctor in the area with the name Khalil. And finally, it was then noticed officially that she was missing. And so... <laughs> The police was called in, they went to the family, and the family was surprised that the police was telling them that Relisha was missing. 
In fact, her aunt on her mother's side is quoted as saying, when the police showed up here with their guns drawn, that's when they finally told me she was missing. I didn't even know my niece was missing. So did her family or at least her mother and them assume that because they left him in the care of Khalil, that he was going to make sure that she was in school? Did they not see him every day at the shelter? Like, I have questions. He was still around. But once it got out that she was reported missing, that was when him and his wife started to move. Like, they started to be on the move and they switched hotel rooms. But that was only, at this point, 18 days later. I don't think the family really paid attention to where he was or where she was. We're going to have a little bit of an intermission where we are going to talk about our knits and about you and then we're gonna hit back to this story because i think i need a mental break from this whole thing so you're originally from new york i'm originally from a little bit of everywhere i am an air force brat Parents were in the military. I was born in Florida, but spent a good chunk of my childhood in Oklahoma. Yeah, Altus Air Force Base, Oklahoma, Huntsville, Alabama, San Antonio, Texas. And then once my mother left the Air Force, she wanted to go back to where her family was. And she was born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx. And that's where the majority of our family was. So we moved up to New York. So I was in New York from about, I feel, age 12-ish all the way up until I was 30. May I ask what what decade that was? Like, I, I don't want to sound like... No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> what decade was that? What, what century? No, like what time period? Yeah, 92. We moved to New York and I was there from... 92 to 2011. So, you know, it was my adolescent, teen years, young adult years, you know, and you figured that decade, 92, you're talking like still smack dab in the middle of the crack epidemic, HIV AIDS, you know, you had all of these things happening. And I, I saw it on a daily on a daily basis, you know, walking to and from school, even, you know, people in my family. I have you know, people who have succumbed to addiction, you know, I've lost a family member to HIV AIDS. So all of those like inner city demons that tend to surround the impoverished and more specifically people of color who are impoverished, I have firsthand, you know, knowledge and experience about a lot of that stuff because of the time frame in which I was up there. And now I'm in Georgia. Which come from someone that also moved from that area to the sticks. Culture shock for me. I don't know if you're in the city or in the suburbs. I say Georgia and everybody's like, oh, Atlanta. I'm like, no, honey, Grovetown. When I moved down here, there was a gas station and a Cracker Barrel. That's all you had. Oh, not the Cracker Barrel. Not the Cracker Barrel. Yes, the Cracker Barrel, the gas station. Oh, and the Walmart, the Walmart. At least you had a Walmart. That's good. In the 10 years I've I've been here, they have added so many new things. It's like really booming around here now. But when I first got here, my husband said, he said there was a, a time there where he just thought 
he was going to have to take me back to New York. I just wasn't going to make it because I'm like, I have... I have no access to like the things that, you know, I am accustomed to. It went from living in a city where you had, you know, black, white, Korean, Chinese, Puerto Rican, Dominican to down here. You had black, you had white, all Asians were the same. A Mexican and a Puerto Rican were the same. Like they didn't distinguish between any of these. When you ask like, where can I go to get good like Puerto Rican food? Oh, well, there's a Mexican restaurant up the street. Wait, that's different. You know, there was a... There was a lot, a lot, a lot of that that I had to deal with. And it was tough, but eventually, you know, I made my, I found my lane and, and I've maintained it and it's starting to become a little more diverse where I am. So that's a good thing. And I was just curious where you were from, because I always felt like you were from like my area, just your accent and everything, but I wasn't quite sure. So it's good to know. And then now I want to know, what are you focusing on right now with your business? Because for those who don't know, Adela runs Lola Bean Yarn. I'm going to put a link in the blog post, of course, in the show notes. But what are you focusing on now? Right now, I call I call 2021 the year of no. I spent from 2018 to uh, 2020 taking on so many different projects and collaborations and signing up with this person to do this event or whatever the case may be. And it, as a, as a one woman show, it was exhausting. It wasn't healthy and it wasn't conducive to like the life. Like I, I started my own business obviously, cause I wanted something um, to do when I, I wanted to be able to help provide for my family, but I also did it to spend more time with my kids I have, you know, my daughter and then I have two stepchildren. Well, they're grown men now, 16, 17, can't tell them nothing. But, you know, that was the whole premise. If I do my own, you know, my own thing, my own business, I can also spend that time. And I had so many commitments, I wasn't even able to really do that. So I said, okay, moving forward, what my focus is going to be, it's not going to be wholesale. It's not going to be, you know, collaborations that I kind of feel obligated. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it and when I feel it serves me and my business best. And that's really what I've been focusing on my retail shop, trying to have regularly scheduled updates for my retail customers, collaborations that I find fun and enjoyable and being able to work with people who I want to learn about and know about, duh, which is why I said yes to this because I'll be, I'll be 100% transparent. I get emails all the time, you know, different podcasts, some are yarn related, some are not articles. Can I do a blog with you? And I'm constant. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. I got yours. And I was like, wait a minute, yarn, true crime, suffice. Okay. I can, I can do this. This is something that is fun. It's different, right? It's interesting. And I get to learn a little bit about you and your process and, you know, the things that you're doing. So I definitely said yes to this, but yeah, my, my goal for 20, for 2021 is, is, is more so to be more about me, me, what I want and what I think is best for me and my business and not what everybody else thinks is. It's amazing to be selfish. I'm just saying, especially as a mom. And I really think that when you become a mom, right? Mom, the, the brain fog that comes along with being a, a parent and you throw COVID in the mix, you throw in 
all of the injustices, well, they've always happened, but that have been spotlighted, right? Which now puts all the eyes on black people and black businesses. So now you have all this extra attention on top of what you already had. It's overwhelming. And for me, what oftentimes happens is I freeze. It's so much to do, so much to think about at one time. I freeze. And by the time I'm finally in a space where it's like, okay, let me go and tackle and do what I need to do. Well, hell, they sent that email four months ago. I don't know why. It doesn't even make sense to respond to it, right? So there was a lot of that. There was a lot, a lot of that, which do, do I feel a little bad about? I do, but do I think people need to be a little more understanding? You know, that time is different. Things are different. Everybody is going through a lot. I absolutely do. And I think for the most part, people understand that. And, you know, if if there is a tomorrow, maybe then. Right. Maybe we can we can we can revisit it. So. But I get it. Well, now that we feel a little bit more uplifted, let's go back to this story. It gets interesting here. Like. I told my husband that the beat just dropped when I got to this point where they just realized that Relisha went missing. And so we we left off when the police storms in on Alicia's aunt and grandmother's home and her aunt's like, I didn't know she was missing. Actually, on that on that same day, the aunt or I think it was the aunt or the grandmother, one of them was scheduled to take Relisha for a little while just to get her out of the environment. You know, she was being used to being passed around quite often just because she didn't have, you know, a stable roof over her head. So that's really what happened here. They just lost sight of where she went. And... So initially, the family thought that Relisha was safe and that she was just staying with her friend. But upon police questioning, the family realized that they had not seen or heard from Khalil or Relisha since March 1st. Mind you, this is March 20th. So we're on day 19 of realizing that this child is missing. That morning, Relisha and her younger brothers were at Ashley's house. And Relisha was getting her hair done and pink and white bows. And she wasn't feeling well. They didn't say what was wrong with her, but she wasn't feeling well enough to go to school. So when the boys went to school, Relisha just stayed with her aunt until her mom picked her up. And this was the last time that Ashley would ever see Relisha again. Later that day, Relisha was seen with Khalil at a day's inn in the area, which to me is bizarre because she's supposed to be sick. So I'm not sure if she wasn't feeling well or just didn't want to go to school. Like, I couldn't tell. She seemed to have a lot of sick days, but there's no known illness here. So just take that information and do what you will with it. But I found that so odd and I wasn't getting enough answers of where was she for 30 days straight. So through questioning, police quickly found out that Relisha was thought to be with Khalil. And so on the 20th, they issued an Amber Alert. And they started to probe into Khalil's background. But the case just takes a gruesome turn when, at the same time, Khalil's wife, Andrea, was found dead with a gunshot wound 
to her head in their hotel room. With this information, police began to look harder at Khalil and they started to piece together what they knew about him. And it just goes from bad to worse. On March 2nd, the day after Relisha was seen, Khalil was seen purchasing a shovel, a carton of 42-gallon trash bags, and lime. And all of these things would be helpful in disposing of a body. And later that same day, he was seen in parks in the area. And I can only speculate that maybe he was looking for a place to lay her to rest. And unfortunately, this happened on March 2nd. But now we're at towards the end of April when they're realizing what had happened. So upon learning this information, the search turned into a recovery mission for a religious body. So the police already figured out that they may be too late. And they began to suspect that Khalil murdered his wife and Relisha, but without a body, this was all still speculation. All they can do is just file for an arrest warrant for Khalil, because at this time, they had to locate him. And remember, he didn't have one place of residence. He was just all over hotels and motels in the area. So they're looking for him. During this search in March, the police released a surveillance footage of Relisha and Khalil walking through the halls of a Holiday Inn in December on April 26th. And I'm going to show you the surveillance footage that was released. Okay, I got it. She's a baby. She's a little thing. The police released that footage during the hunt for Relisha because they're trying to get more information. And this was the last official surveillance footage of Relisha. But unfortunately, on April 1st, during the hunt, Scalia was found dead with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his head. Ballistics proved that it was the same gun used to murder his wife. She knew something and she was going to say something when that Amber Alert came out and he got her. Oh, gosh. Most likely. And one source claims that recently upon... This same time period when all this went down, they were about to file for divorce. The police speculate now that he killed his wife and Relisha. Whether or not it was on the same day or she may have... I think Relisha passed away first and then after the fact, he murdered his wife too. And then when the manhunt happened, when they filed a warrant for his arrest, it was only a few days later he was found dead. And it was in a park. So I suspect that that's the same place where he probably laid her to rest because he was scoping out parks that same day that he bought all that mysterious, questionable stuff. And the guilt, you know, the guilt and the 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 cowardness of of, you know, not wanting to face whatever was was coming towards you through, you know, the investigation and warrants and all of that stuff, it would make sense that he would do it wherever he, you know, laid her to rest. So most people speculate that Khalil did it, that he is behind Relisha's disappearance. Believe it or not, there is a lot of theories here about what really happened to Relisha. Some think that the disappearance was orchestrated by Shamika her mother. 
And this speculation is fueled by the fact that Shamika initially claimed that she never allowed Relisha to be alone with Khalil, which was very quickly discovered to be a lie. And she said this on camera during a local news interview. And this is only amplified by the fact that she was featured on Steve Wilco's show. And it was Shamika, Relisha's stepfather, Antonio, and their maternal grandmother. So Relisha's grandmother. And only Antonio and a grandmother agreed to take the polygraph test and passed. But Relisha's mother refused to take one. People think that's a sign of her guilt. And I don't think that's fair, personally. Polygraphs don't really... I mean, you can't use them in court, right? That's the one thing. And I I never understood, like, if something happened to my child, God forbid, I'd be so distressed. I I, I don't know how a polygraph test would accurately, you know, be able to distinguish, like, okay, deception versus extreme, you know, distress over like, you know, not knowing where your child is or whatever the case may be. So those have always been funny to me. And I don't think I would take a polygraph, especially, excuse me, but Steve Wilco show, come on. That was, he was Jerry Springer's bodyguard, wasn't he? At one point, that's what he did. Yeah. I'm not taking your polygraph, Steve. You know, you're not, you're not. (laughs) Yeah. No. My husband and I, we are addicted to true crime and so we have this agreement where we will never take a polygraph test just because the test is only as good as the test prompter. So if the prompter is asking questions that aren't, you know, conducive to having a good test or if they got the wrong base scale, it's only as good as the prompter. And if you're on any type of medication, if you're really stressed out, if you're on drugs, like I don't know if Relisha's mother was a drug user. This whole thing sounds like she most likely was, but it was really hard finding that information from a reputable source, if I should say, because everyone's ready to talk smack about her and judge her. So it's Because of that, it's very hard to say, okay, like, was she in fact a good mother? Her mother said yes. The rest of the world says no. People they know said that it was okay. You know what I mean? So I 100% think it was great that she didn't take the test, especially on Steve Wilco's show, which is a show for entertainment, not for truth. I would have never been on that show. I, I hope they got paid enough to warrant that because... That was a bad idea. Like, where was your lawyer? Apparently, her lawyer had her back because I bet her lawyer said, don't take this test because no lawyer ever would agree to that. So, but people thought because of that, it was a sign of guilt. And this is like the worst indicator of guilt to me. And some people think that she sold um, her daughter to Khalil or maybe gave her to Khalil to be sold to someone else. But there's just no evidence of that. This is all just speculation. Another theory is that she was just sold into sex trafficking, whether it's by Khalil or someone else just took her and sold into trafficking. But with all these speculations, you know, until we find where she is, we may just never know what happened to her. You know, her case is just still open to this day. And they are continuously looking. They're still getting tips. But... In the middle of this, everyone's trying to figure out how did this happen? And so the state come up with this report of what happened and trying to figure out who is to blame. 
And guess who they decide to put the blame on? They said there was nothing that they could have done to prevent this from happening. And it just is almost as if they lit a dumpster fire in saying that because angry articles just shot up overnight after they released that 12-page report in which they figured out that there was no wrongdoing done on the city or state or anyone, despite the fact there were 30 days missing from school. And you're supposed to call CPS at 10 days. So everyone was furious about that. Yes, absolutely. My goodness. I'm, I'm so surprised I didn't know this one. Because I am like true crime to like down to my bones. So this was this was quite the story. My goodness. And they couldn't see or they had no fault. They couldn't find any fault on their own. As to, That is wild. That is wild. It almost makes you think if she was, you know, another color. What would this have looked like? Yes. And so many others, and especially in that area, in the D.C. area, you know, little, you know, black and brown girls and women go missing all of the time. And that's like the 95 corridor. That's one of the main like sex trafficking routes. Like, oh, that's wild. So that's just the aftermath of what happened to Relisha. And I really want to end with this, that the FBI is currently offering a $25,000 reward for any information leading to Relisha Rudd's location and return. If you have any information regarding Relisha Rudd's disappearance or whereabouts, please contact the D.C. Police Department. I'm going to put the number in the show notes or call 1-800-THE-LOST. And a description of Relisha Rudd, just in case she is still out there, you know, like there's always a chance, you know. She is black female. She has brown hair, brown eyes. I think she's cute as a button, and she was born on October 29, 2005. She was four feet at the time she disappeared, and she was approximately 70 to 80 pounds. She was known to wear a purple Helly Hansen brand winter jacket and pink boots. Today, she would be 14 years old, and she slept with a teddy bear named Baby. So... That's all the things that they have to identify her. So I'm asking everyone who's listening, you know, like there's still a chance. She has not been found yet, body or nothing. So, you know, just keep your eye out if you're from the D.C. area or anywhere, just because there's so much, you know, youth and young people who slip through the cracks in general. Like she could just be missing. I hear stories all the time, 15 years later, 20 years later, and they come back. So just keep that in mind. Please keep an eye out, everyone. If you have any information about her disappearance, please visit the show notes. It's linked in this video, no matter what you're listening to, like where if it's on YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, it's linked in the video description. And then thank you, Adela, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime in It. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.